Hello and welcome to The Reader Podcast. My name is Frances and I work for The Reader, which is a national charity bringing thousands of people together every week all over the UK in order to experience and enjoy great literature through shared reading. There's no doubt that the reader relies on the kindness of strangers. Or rather, we work on the belief that we're all somehow connected in kind and all of us can tap into that commonality of feeling when we read together. The reader certainly relies on the people who begin as strangers and go on to become reader volunteers, running shared reading groups all over the country. These people are moved to volunteer for many reasons, but kindness is surely one of them. The reader also relies on the kindness of authors who volunteer their time and allow us to use their work. The author and screenwriter Frank Cottrell Boyce is a long-standing patron of the reader, a true and loyal friend. As part of the Liverpool Together programme, co-produced by Culture Liverpool and BBC Radio Merseyside and made to mark a year since the start of lockdown, Frank gave a eulogy for those lost to this pandemic. He reflected on a year when in Liverpool and everywhere we have needed more than ever that commonality of feeling. We have all relied on what the poet William Wordsworth called the little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love. We're coming to you today from the concert room at St George's Hall. This is the very first building in the world to have air conditioning. There's a labyrinth of Victorian pipes bringing warm air in and taking stale air out. This building breathes. When Dickens performed here, he called it the most perfect room in the world. When he read here, or Leslie Garrett sang here, or lovers exchanged their vows here, it literally took their breath away. And now, the singing and the laughter have stopped. Even in Liverpool, we've had to learn to walk alone. No more crowds pouring out of the stadiums into Gladys Street or Priory Road with hope in their hearts. No more high-heeled hen nights, I will surviving around Concert Square. In the churches, no choirs are singing. There are no cellars full of noise. Listen. One of the world's most joyously musical cities has fallen silent. And instead of those hen-like conga lines or stadium waves, there's a whole new social choreography, the elbow bump. That reassuring, yes, I'm still here, nod on your morning walk. The conversations held through open windows the people sitting talking to each other from opposite ends of the park bench as though the empty space between them was full of ghosts. One thing about silence is it makes you listen. You learn what's important. Like for instance, your breath, which can be taken away or can take your loved ones away. 150,000 of them, many of them alone, gasping for that one last breath. You learn how important it is to have a hand to hold in those last moments, to have the chance to say at the last, 
the things you always meant to say. 150,000 funerals with no, the family would like you to join them after the service for refreshments, for solace, for memories, for I haven't seen you in donkey's years, for embraces. Probably all know someone. And then there are the people we didn't quite know, like Brian, the man who ran my nearest Mersey rail station, who I saw nearly every day, but whose surname I never knew and who died of COVID right at the start of this. Brian was one of those people who always went the extra mile. He remembered your name, he asked after the children, he passed on the news. If you'd had a long journey home, if you'd missed your connection, if the trip had been a waste of time and you saw Brian as you climbed down onto the platform, you could have a bit of banter and think, oh, well, I'm home now. All of these little gestures added up to one great gift a gift he gave freely to everybody. He made you feel as if you mattered. He gave you back a little bit of your humanity with your change. Being pleasant, showing an interest, doing our best for each other, taking the trouble to raise a smile. These may sound like small, unheroic virtues, but these, these are the qualities that have got us through this. That stern, joyful discipline of noticing other people, keeping an eye out for each other, being interested enough to speak, to listen, to wish well, to do our best for each other. These are the virtues in which this city abounds. In the silence, we have heard one great truth. The truth is, we mean a lot to each other. The little gestures, the are you all right? The, I'm off to the shops, going to get you anything. The, I'm sorry for your loss. These are mighty as vaccines. For the growing good of this world, wrote George Eliot, is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who live faithfully. I was thinking about those benches. Nearly every bench in this city has got a little plaque on it in memory of someone or other. So there are ghosts on those benches. Ghosts that are saying, come here, sit by me. The prom where I walk every day is built on the rubble that was bought from Bootle after the Blitz. A bright phoenix that we brought out of the flames. The lost are never really lost. They have gone before us, as we say, marked with the sign of faith, and they are never silent. In the laughter of memory, in the sigh of grief, they speak to us. They say, you'll never walk alone. And one day soon we will, like this wonderful room, breathe easy again. We're grateful to Frank and to Culture Liverpool and BBC Radio Merseyside for allowing us to play the eulogy as part of this episode. The writer Joanne Harris is known to many as the author of Chocolat, but at the reader, we're most grateful to her for her short stories, which we've used for many years in many shared reading groups. Joanne was kind enough to be our guest in February at a special online event hosted by the reader 
to celebrate Sefton's year as the Liverpool City region's borough of culture. Joanne read from Orfea, which is the latest in her series of short novels, which are based on an 18th century collection of British folk tales called The Child Ballads. And she spoke with Andrew from the reader about her work and about stories that have been passed down the centuries and across cultures, the storage places of our shared humanity. It wasn't my intention to to write a series of novellas. It just kind of happened. But it, it started three years ago when I wrote a book called A Pocketful of Crows. And it was based on a child ballad. Now, if, if you're not familiar with child's ballads, I wouldn't be at all surprised because they are not as well known as they ought to be. They're a, a compilation of ballads that were put together by a man called Child in the 18th century. The folk ballads of the British Isles and North America. And they ought to really be our Grimm's fairy tales, but they are not. They're, they're not terribly well known, except perhaps in the folk music community, which seemed to me to be a bit of a pity because we have so many retellings of Grimm's fairy tales and Perrault's fairy tales that it seems to me that having this wonderful archive of indigenous stories and not using them seems a bit of a crime. And so I wrote A Pocket Full of Crows, and then I wrote um, The Blue Salt Road, and then I, I wrote Orphea. Now, the first two are fairly simple stories. They are based on one ballad only. Orphea is a little bit different. It's a little bit more complicated, and it is a kind of mashup of several ballads. One, the, the most important one is called The Elfin Knight, and it's a story of supernatural seduction. And the other one is, is all about riddles. And when I started to write this book, I was in a strange place emotionally. I'd just finished a book called The Strawberry Thief, which is all about a mother letting go of her daughter. And Orfea is more or less around the same thematic content, but this time it is about grief. It's about letting go of grief and memory. And, and I, I didn't really know where I was going to go with it at first. I wanted to write a retelling of some of the ballads, and I wanted it to tie in with another of the child ballads, which is a sort of version, a very odd Celtic version of the Orpheus myth. And so I kind of knotted these stories together in this, in this ballad-inspired story, which starts in the real world, which goes through a number of fantasy worlds. And it starts, as you know, with with Faye, who is my heroine, who, who is a mother in grief. She has lost her daughter to suicide and doesn't know what to do. And through various coping mechanisms, she finds herself running as therapy through London where she lives. And from that place, she finds that she crosses over the liminal spaces into another London. And this is classic... Celtic fairy story. This is these are the boundary stories that link our edge spaces with our city spaces. And so I created several versions of London. One is the London we know, the London that Faye inhabits. And then there is London below, which is a kind of entrance into fairyland. This story came to me years ago um, from my, my, my great aunt, in fact, my French great-aunt. And this was a woman I've written about before in some of my books. She was 
tremendously tough, tremendously strong, had undergone an awful lot of trials and tribulations during her long life and had had a very, very unhappy marriage. Um, and one son who she loved enormously, who was a good for nothing, um, terribly spoilt, a drug addict. He walked out on her in his 20s, taking all her money. And she forgave him because he was her son and she adored him. But he went off to live in Martinique somewhere. And I never met him. I think I might have seen him as a child, but um, I, I never really knew him. But I knew about him all the time because my aunt would talk about him. And she would describe what he was doing. Um, he didn't write to her, but other people sometimes did. And she learnt that he was a hairdresser and that he had got married and that he had a daughter in Martinique. And she had this little photograph of him and his family. And this photograph would get brought out every year when I went to see my aunt and she would talk about her son. Um, and the photograph never changed and there were never any more of them. And then many, many years later, I think, you know, something like 40 years later, one of her friends happened to drop the bombshell that she knew that he died. And he died years ago. Um, and it completely destroyed my aunt. She, she went from being this, this self-sufficient, tough woman to, to being somebody who was in the throes of, I think, a kind of grief dementia. And it was clear that it was just impossible for her to accept the loss of her son. She'd been clinging on to it for such a long time, to the fact that she had this, this son somewhere in the world, um, that all her memory deserted her. And, and within six months, she didn't really know who anybody was anymore. And it was as if she'd been made into a kind of ghost of herself. And it was, it was very striking and very upsetting, but also almost fairy tale like it was as if she'd lost a layer of herself and so I put her into this book and I I gave her if not a happy ending at least the resolution that I thought she deserved and so she too is part of Faye and and her story is also part of Faye's story. Now I don't want to tell you too much about what's going on so I'm going to let you interject if you've got any questions at all I'll ask you a few questions, uh, Joanna. Oh, please do, yes. Thank you, Andrew. I'll pick up on a few of the ones that, uh, that are still in the, uh, in the chat. One of the interesting things about Orfea, uh, I'm trying not to give too much away here, but you do blur those boundaries a little bit where it becomes not quite clear which is the reality, whether it's Fay or Queen Orfea, uh, who's the, the real figure. Uh, and who is the dream figure. Was this something you wanted to do to try and bring out the universality of it, really, to kind of keep it rooted a little bit in, uh, in the real world? Well, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that people think in terms of the real world and the unreal world, because, of course, we, we all inhabit different worlds. Our reality is, is, is not the same as another person's reality. And because this is a story of different perceptions and of different mental states, you know, you, you could quite easily say that it's actually all set in the real world, but, you know, it is set in the world of Faye's mind and, and her state of grieving and her state of memory loss and her state of trying to cope. 
you can take it all as a metaphor if you like a, a metaphor of enchantment in much the same way that you know my aunt lost her memory in a sort of slightly spooky and supernatural way um even though there were completely natural causes for it i think you know a lot of the time when i talk about the world and reality it's it's, it's very much about how we perceive it and so this it's Yes, it has fairy tale and folkloric influences, but it's it's also, I think, rooted in 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 how we feel and feelings are real and feelings are legitimate, whatever they are. I just wondered about the oral tradition. Uh, that's obviously something that was really important to you. Well, I think it's important to all of us because we've we've all been brought up essentially on the fairy tales of the oral tradition. I think as, as human beings, we, we tend to feed and function on the oral tradition of storytelling, even though obviously we've got a, a strong literary heritage and a strong written tradition. I think, you know, there is something about stories that have been passed down, which is special and different. Telling a story, what you do is you take a story that people generally already more or less know and you give it a twist, you make it your own. Um, which is why as soon as you write stories down and you, you crystallise them, then you can't do that anymore. There is a kind of canon that you have to, to, to stick by. So I like the idea of, of the oral tradition being something that anybody can just take possession of. And, and the reason these stories are still alive is people have not just fixed them in time. They have made them applicable to whatever is most important to them at any given moment. And, and I've written a lot about Norse myths and, and, you know, Norse myths are a case in point because when you look at the oral tradition of Norse mythology, you know, there wasn't a written tradition, not for a long time, not until the 12th century. And by then, Scandinavia had been Christianized and that oral tradition was dying out. And so what was written down was a Christianized version of something that had already mostly been lost. And then it disappeared for a while. And then in the 17th century, it was reinvented. And the whole of this kind of concept of Vikings and conquest emerged from this, which, which hadn't really been a thing before. But it was almost as if the tradition of those folk tales had been reinvented for a time of exploration and conquest. And then it died down a little and poof, it came back in Victorian times as part of a heroic tradition of great deeds and empires, because that was what the Victorians were interested in. And then in the 20th century, it came back as superheroes because this was the emerging narrative. And so you've got this constant chain of narratives through oral traditions and folklores, which just pick up. What is important for a culture at any given time and just cherry picks the, the important themes and, and delivers them in a way that, that people can understand and, and people can relate to. And Rachel Sumner says, you've got such wonderful knowledge of folklore. How did you do your research? <laughs> well, you know, a lot of this is probably things you grew up with. That's, uh... Absolutely. I yeah, I, I don't really do research in, in the kind of accredited way. I have been studying folklore all my life um, and myths and legends, and I've read so much about it that it doesn't, to me, it doesn't really count as research. It counts as a sort of long body of study, uh, which is still ongoing. I'm still constantly 
picking up new aspects of folklore and, and collecting new myths and, and, and talking to people. And, and everywhere I go when I travel, in the days when I used to travel, um, I always pick up stories. People tell me stories. And, and it's a very good entry into, into culture, because if you know what a culture dreams of, it's much easier to understand it. And actually, the more I travel, the more I realize that we actually, more or less, all of us dream about the same things. We just give them slightly different shapes. I remember when I was, um, I spent three months in the Congo, once, long story, um, with uh, MSF. I gave them the, um, the money from my cookbooks and they took me on a, a, an extraordinary trip down the Congo River, um, inoculating people against sleeping sickness. And I met a lot of people who told me a lot of stories. So I got tremendous Congolese stories about witches and wizards and witch doctors. And, and, I, and I shared my stories of Yorkshire and Pendle. And going back down the river weeks later, I realised that they were telling those stories. They were retelling them, but they had already gone native. They, they'd already been adapted and they'd already acquired a new identity because stories tend to migrate. I think they do this naturally. They, they, have, they have a way of connecting with certain aspects, human aspects, and then they will, they will adapt to, to become familiar. Are there any pieces of literature, poems or novels that presented themselves in a similarly serendipitous way to you? Oh, yes. I think I'm very open to this kind of thing. I don't plan ahead in any kind of architectural way. I very often allow things to, to just happen because I think that, you know, the, the, the element of serendipity here is, is quite important to me, and particularly when I'm writing about magical things. Sometimes I just think there is a time for certain things to, to happen. There is an optimal time for a story to be told, and the circumstances do often shape the story. I'm always affected by what I read and, and by other things too, by pictures, um, photographs. I think, you know, to, to make art, you have to consume art. You know, you have to put in at least as much as comes out because otherwise it's, it's not going to come out. And so, yes, I'm constantly bouncing off other ideas. And I know that, that you know, if, if I get stale, it is because I haven't, I haven't experienced enough art from other people. Um, and so, yes, I'm, I'm constantly getting ideas from, from books, poems. Poems are, are often very generous, I think, in terms of delivering ideas, but also visual. I, I'm, I'm very sensitive to the visual and music because music is, you know, another aspect to what I do. And, and, and I really, I think that music and stories are as closely intertwined as, as stories and illustration. Question which moves us away from Orpheus slightly, uh, but uh, I mentioned in my introduction that Tea with the Birds is a favourite with a lot of our readers' groups. And there's a question from Emma Taylor who said that Tea with the Birds is a fave and seems to resonate and always warms people. What inspired you to write it? What inspired me? It was it, Well, it was a little man that I met who was a vegetable chef. On, uh, on a cruise ship, I was doing um, a series of lectures on the Queen Mary II. And um, I tend, when I'm on cruise ships, to talk to the staff rather more than I do to the guests, because they're, they're full of stories. 
And this, this man's job, his only job, as far as I could see, was making beautifully carved vegetables. And I was really curious about, A, how he did this, because he was incredibly skilled, and also who ate them, because I, as far as I could see, nobody ate them. Um, and he just made these, these wonderful objects of, of whimsy. And I just wondered what happened to them. And so I wrote a little story about him. But uh, yeah, I, I, just, I just really liked the relationship he had with his craft. And he seemed very, very happy in his work. Near the end of that conversation, Andrew asked Joanne a question about her story, Tea with the Birds, which appears in the collection Jigs and Reels, first published in 2004. That story, Tea with the Birds, has long been a favourite with groups taking place in criminal justice settings. So it was a natural choice for another shared reading programme made by the Reader and the Prison Radio Association and aired on National Prison Radio earlier this year. We'll listen in now to Lizzie from the Reader reading Tea with the Birds and talking about it with participants T and James. I'd just like to say we're so grateful to Joanne Harris for allowing us to read her story today. Tea with the Birds is included in her collection of stories, Gigs and Reels, which was published by Doubleday in 2005. Some people spend their lives without ever raising their eyes from the ground. Others dream of flying. The funny thing about Mortimer Street is that no one really seems to know anybody else. It's one of those places, busy without being comfortable, crowded without being friendly. The big staccato fronted houses at the far end are too remote the ones of us who live in the terraces feel diminished by them, even though they're past their best, like a row of wedding cakes left out in the rain. The terraces are closer together, but the people in them live like birds in cages, bickering over parking spaces and pecking at each other from behind net curtains. Gossip is currency. The more slanderous, the better. And the worst crime of all is to be an outsider. I should know. I'm one myself. Wrong face, wrong clothes, wrong voice. I'm a completely different race from my neighbours and it makes them suspicious that I should choose to live here among them, on the second floor of a big back-to-back -back terrace, which has been converted into four bedsits. People assume, with an instinctive contempt that hides fear, that I'm a student. In fact, there are no students in these cheap lodgings. The people for whom they were intended prefer their own digs in Stanbury, where there is a theatre and a cinema and a noisy row of pubs. 
There is something a little cold about Mortimer Street. A reluctance to get involved. At first, its coldness suited me. Two years in a psychiatric hospital had given me a fierce need for privacy, for silence. I took joy in the solitude of my little room, the quietness of the nights, spent hours in my private bathroom, cooked slow, deliberate meals in my tiny kitchen. Some evenings I did voluntary work for the Samaritans. It was rather dull work. I only persevered because my therapist recommended it. The rest of the time, I earned money waitressing. Again, my therapist approved. It kept my mind from flights of fancy. But at home, if Mortimer Street was home, I enjoyed my seclusion too much to share it willingly. The gossips had nothing on me. They watched me going to work in the evenings, my drab coat buttoned to the neck, and concluded that I was a student nurse. I never denied it. I gained the reputation of being snobby, possibly because I refused to babysit the child of a neighbour I barely knew. And after a few half-hearted attempts to breach my defences, they left me in peace. Were there any first impressions or did anything sort of stand out to anyone as I was reading? Quite a bit, to be honest. Um, yeah. I mean, it started off reading like a pretty bleak commentary on modern life, really, um, with everyone minding their own business, looking at the ground, not speaking to everyone and what have you. And then she makes reference to having psychiatric therapy and what have you. And that changed my mind a little bit because people who tend to see the world like that will only see the world like that. You know, if they see themselves as excluded, then that's all they'll see, even whether it's true or not. So you actually, James, were sort of starting to build up this picture. And then with that little insight we had into this person's past, Mm. made you almost look back again. Yeah, it made me doubt Mm. that what she was saying was actually true. I mean, first, she was painting this picture of quite a bleak and isolated, in my mind, a modern street, you know, sort of present day. That's what it, it drew to me. And then when she went off on that tangent, it didn't just make me think of her. It just reminded me that people see what they want to see. You know, if people feel that they don't belong, then that the lot all they'll see is people looking at them in a way that says you're excluded, even when you're not. Yeah, I love that idea. And you're making me sort of reread those lines again now and really look into almost like what this person's state of mind is as they're coming into this space now. I mean, don't get me wrong, a lot of what she was saying is true about society, you know. But um, where's this going? What effect is it having on her? To what extent? Is it the street that's impacting her or is it her mental health impacting the way she looks at the street? Hmm. Yeah. And you've said there's a picture sort of of a, a modern day coldness. Any lines in particular that sort of stood out about this street that either you felt, yes, I've been on streets like this, or that you thought really captured it, maybe? I mean, with the stucco fronted, referring to them as looking like wedding cakes. Because <laughs> you know, like those Georgian white houses, it was a very good depiction of them. But um, it wasn't so much that. It was just, you know, the things you were saying, there was something a little cold about Mortimer Street, a reluctance to get involved. Mm. Statements like that. 
it just drew a picture of quite a close society, perhaps a section of society that's well off and she doesn't feel she belongs there. I don't know. It, there's a lot going on. Yeah, like it for me, you know, when you get like initial things and you read something and it takes you somewhere. Mm-hmm. For me, it really took me back to my day of release for some reason. Okay. So my day of release, I really, really struggled on my, my day of release. It was just so overwhelming. And you, you kind of get to your shared accommodation and, and whatnot in like this area. And it's people you don't really associate with. And you're trying to get your life back together. And you're just doing waitressing or whatever job you can, like just leaving the house to make ends meet. And then sort of keeping yourself to yourself while you've got all of this chaos and like craziness going on around you. So it really, really brought me back to that place because I found a lot of similarities. So where you're saying she might not feel she fitted in because she felt that they were of a higher social status to her. I actually think it's the opposite way around. I mean, where she's like, they're trying to get me to look after their children and in a lot of the dodgy shared accommodations and especially some of the unregulated ones. These things go on all the time and that's why it brought me back to that place there and my day of release. Wow, yeah, thank you for sharing that, T, actually, because as you were talking, I got that sense of, almost like having to be switched on all the time and then as you said you've been put into the situation and you also have to establish yourself in this situation as well yeah you kind of have to establish um when you are the new person walking in somewhere wherever it is people have like preconceived ideas they've got their friendship groups already formed Mm. they'll be talking amongst themselves and you can feel that energy you get that sense of uneasiness and I think whether she can see them specifically talking about her or it is just behind the curtain and the birds behind her back sort of thing I think she still gets the sense that people are talking about her she doesn't fit in there and yes you can I get what you're saying James that if that's all you see then you will never fit in Mm. But there are sort of instances where you really just stand out like a sore thumb and there's nothing that you can do. It's just not going to change, unfortunately. And I I sometimes find myself being that kind of person. Like, I do struggle to fit into certain places. Mm. But I also say now that it's like I will choose to surround myself with people that have that same aspirations or energy or kindness as I have Mm -hmm. and when you're in those situations you can't be that fussy you can't sort of say this is my energy this is my space and this is how I want to protect it it's that this is my bed for the night these are the people that I have around me let's just hope the door doesn't come through and you just get on with it don't you Mm. you don't have time to breathe and to be like oh I don't fit in or these aren't really my people yeah Mm. I know what you mean Thanks for sharing that, actually. And I think it's almost like she's caught in between what you're both saying, where things are affecting her. She says she has the wrong face, the wrong clothes. But then she also says the gossips have nothing on me. She's kind of afraid to show herself in a way, so she doesn't want to give them any ammunition by being too involved, too visible. Wow. And that's why she's sort of pulling away, and yet that's why they're calling her snobby. Mm. I'm coming back now to the fact that she had spent two years in a psychiatric hospital and had given me a fierce need for privacy, for silence. And I'm trying to put myself sort of in her shoes where everybody's been the flurry of interest. Everybody's been, you know, trying to find out about her. And now she's got that bit. They left me in peace. 
Yeah, perhaps she felt because she was in an environment where she was very much being, in essence, studied or certainly watched, you know, quite a lot. There'd be a lot of attention on her, but in, in perhaps a helpful way or, or maybe in an intrusive way she found, started to find it. I don't know. And maybe that she's just relating that into now not being in that situation. Perhaps she finds the attention of just strangers intrusive. I don't know. I actually hadn't really acknowledged that in my head. So you saying that out loud has really brought then the attention of the community in Mortimer Street into a new light for me. So thanks for doing that, actually. Because what you got to remember, I mean, it's similar to when you leave prison. <laughs> There's kind of um, instances where you sort of, you lose your rationale and you're walking down the street thinking people are looking at you and they know you've been in prison or they know you've just come out of prison. It's totally irrational and used to make me smile at myself. When I first got out, I used to go to this Costa Coffee every day for about two weeks and I'd be sitting there thinking, he knows I was in prison, she knows I was in prison, <laughs> just, just jokingly in my head because those thoughts do enter your head. You know, so perhaps what I'm saying, the reason I'm illustrating that is because there's probably a certain amount of paranoia in her now. Mm. which again to me highlights that is any of this really real wow well it feels like we've really got under the surface and exposed a lot more questions and a lot more complexities about this person so we are going to read on just for a little bit then to my dismay someone moved into the flat opposite mine a Mr Juzo Tamanoki the name on the letterbox said Another foreigner said the Mortimer Street grapevine with barely concealed disapproval. I didn't care about that. I only hoped he would be a quiet neighbour and that he would leave me alone. For a while he did. For days I did not see him. I heard almost no sound from his flat. There were no requests to borrow tea. No audible comings and goings. No visits from friends. My neighbour might have been like myself. An unperson. A vacuum. A ghost. He had been living opposite me for a week before I finally caught sight of Mr Tamanoki. We met on the landing. A brief glance passed between us. A nod. I found myself studying him with reluctant curiosity. This man, who might have been any age, small, neat, unassuming. The intruder who now shared my silent space. He reminded me of a bird I had once seen in a provincial zoo, small and drab looking in its cage. It huddled in a corner, barely moving, as if in apology at receiving so much attention. Its eyes were all age and sadness. A sign beneath the cage read, Bread in Captivity. I saw that expression in Mr Tamanoki's face. By then, I knew it well. I saw it every morning in my own bathroom mirror. Sometimes, though not so often now, I still do. As with all newcomers on Mortimer Street, 
the arrival of Mr. Tamanuki aroused a certain fleeting curiosity. Someone told me he was a vegetable chef in a restaurant in Stanbury, though no one seemed to know for sure. He never spoke to anyone. When I met him on the landing, he would nod and smile, drawing back against the wall so that I could pass. These meetings were frequent. After the first week, I discovered that his movements were as regular as my own. At night, when I collapsed into bed after an evening's waitressing, I could occasionally hear him moving around his flat or talking to himself in low, rapid Japanese. Most often, though, there was nothing. No friends called on Mr. Tamanoki. No loud music played. From what I could tell, he seemed to spend hours sitting in silence, not moving at all. Although I was always conscious of his presence, my hearing is very sensitive. It was not as obtrusive as I had feared. In fact, for someone of my temperament, he should have been the perfect neighbour. It really upsets me the way that she talks about herself. When she calls herself an unperson, what is an unperson? It's not even a thing. A vacuum, a ghost. It's just. They don't even have words to describe it. It's just concerning. I know she's always described herself as an outsider, but this feels more than that. It feels like an observer, not even an outsider. It's like she's like fractured from reality and from what what is going on, and she's just sort of observing from a distance. Mm. So you've really got into the emotion of that bit. Mm. And yeah, that question. My neighbour might have been like myself, an unperson, a vacuum, a ghost. Maybe she's a vacuum because she takes on everyone's thoughts and feelings. She's a ghost because no one really sees her. She's always dismissed by everybody. And she's an unperson because she looks around and she doesn't see where she fits in. And she's like, I'm not like these people. If this is what people are like, then what am I? Because mm -hmm. it's not me, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I was really puzzled by that. And I was wondering how those three are even related. <laughs> like, Well, they all relate to being spent. Mm. <gasps> they do. I mean, a vacuum's empty. A ghost is a dead person. And an unperson is nothing, which suggests she's got nothing to offer, which again contradicts what she does. She's yeah. a, she's a, wait yeah. a waitress and a Samaritan. That's really true. Yeah, because that goes into T and James as well, what you said at the beginning. How do they view themselves and how that's impacting how they view the world? Yeah, and it's funny that she seems to recognise all that in this fellow that she's now met. She's not lost in her own despair. She recognises it and she can even see it, the possibility, if not the reality of it, in somebody else. But the level of criticalness that she holds herself to is crazy. It's like it doesn't matter if she changed the whole law of the land, the mirror would still reflect a useless, unworthy individual. She's drummed that into herself so deeply that... She won't ever see it. It doesn't matter if any of us mm. sit and say it to her a hundred times. She isn't going to see this. That's really sad. I think a couple of us have said throughout this that things relate to experience. 
So I think she probably feels like that because somebody's made her feel like that in the past that no matter what she does, she's useless. Yeah. And that could relate to the whole mental health thing as well. Wow. And can we spend some time with this neighbour now, Mr. Juzo Tamanoki? I was looking at this paragraph. He reminded me of a bird I had once seen in a provincial zoo, small and drab looking in its cage. It huddled in a corner, barely moving, as if in an apology at receiving so much attention. Its eyes were all age and sadness. A sign beneath the cage read, Bred in Captivity. I saw that expression in Mr. Tamanoki's face. By then I knew it well. I saw it every morning in my own bathroom mirror. Sometimes, though, not so often now, I still do. It's that bit bred in captivity. I don't know. I think it just might be a metaphor for the sadness, really. She's definitely saying that this is, you know, a sad, lonely kind of character. What's sadder than a bird that's never been free? Yeah. And she sees this in her neighbour. So are they both in the same state? It sounds like she fluctuates a little bit. Mm. But she says she sees it sometimes, not that often now, but she still does. Which suggests hope. Yes, the first time we've had maybe a bit of a, a positive light gleaming into this, that word hope. Do you think sometimes you have to almost look at where you're heading like a reflection of you in some kind of way and it kind of you look at it in the respect of if I don't change this is going to be me in 10 years time mm. I'm going to be this old man that's got no one that doesn't move around his house very often and it's kind of the realization to her maybe yeah yeah quite possibly yeah. because it, you know she can certainly recognize it that's the thing it's the key thing wow yeah so I think I'm sensing a bit of a shift because in the first bit we sort of were talking about she's in this state where almost as a way of survival she's had to create walls and you know she's putting up fronts but now we're almost getting a glimpse into your future that if something maybe doesn't change she's going to end up with no friends called on Mr. Tamanoki, no loud music played. Yes and I think as well she could have everybody under the sun telling her how brilliant and amazing she is and look at what you do. But until you believe it within yourself, you can hear it till the cows come home and it will not change your opinion or how you see yourself. Wow. Yeah. I feel like we need to read on to see if she does get to that point. But there was a problem. Every morning at 530 there would be a delivery of vegetables for Juzo Tamanoki. A red van decorated with Japanese characters would rumble along Mortimer Street and stop outside the house. And two men would haul covered crates out onto the pavement. One man would ring the bell while the other called up to the window. On cold days, they left the engine running and the exhaust billowed clouds of fumes which the neon of the street lamp opposite torched a lurid orange. The delivery men were stoically indifferent to my timid protests. Indeed, when I tried to complain, they gave no indication of having understood me at all. 
They merely hauled their crates to the doorstep and waited for Juzo Tamanoki to collect. Carrots, peppers, radishes, celeriac, parsnips and glossy yellow, purple and black squash gleamed exotically from crisp tissue paper shells. Then came the thumping of boxes against the walls, raised voices in the stairwell, shouted instructions, laboured steps on the landing and a final double thump as the crates hit the floorboards. And then, blissfully, the sound of the van's departure, its exhaust blatting rudely in the still morning air. No one else on the street seemed to care or even to notice. But I have always suffered from insomnia. The slightest disturbance wakes me. Once awake, there is nothing to be done. To go back to sleep is impossible. My work meant that I was rarely in bed until the small hours of the morning. At best, I could only average five hours sleep a night. And Mr Tamanuki's vegetable delivery reduced it to less than four. At first, I tried to reason with him. But the man politely deflected all attempts at conversation. Notes pinned to his door remained unanswered. My silent resentment grew. I tried to discover its counterpart in Mr Tamanoki's mild, dark eyes as we passed each other on the stairs. But he was impassive. His smile and my nod as we met on the landing remained the only communication between us. At six o'clock every night, he would leave the flat a heavy bamboo hamper in each hand as I set off for work. What these hampers contained, I could not imagine. Vegetables, perhaps. Why then didn't he have them delivered directly to the restaurant? Curiosity almost overcame my rancour. I began to make comments as we passed every day on the landing growing bolder at his lack of reaction. And Mr Tamanoki continued to smile and nod with unfaltering politeness, even when I did not. As the uneventful weeks passed, it occurred to me that perhaps my neighbour spoke no English and I became reckless at the thought, muttering insults at the meek little man as he staggered down the stairs with his hampers. My suspicion was confirmed when I heard him practising English phrases with the aid of a tape recorder. Laborious words and phrases repeated endlessly and haltingly in the night. Please, excuse me, thank you, you too kind. Once I heard a scratchy, old-sounding record. Oh, for the wings of a dove. The only thing about that whole passage is I'm just a little surprised 
that she confronted him about it even before she knew he couldn't speak English. Could you speak a bit more about that, James? Why were you surprised? Well, I mean, because at the beginning of the whole story, she's talking about the neighbours and the fact that she doesn't deny their suspicions. She doesn't confront or challenge them in any way, shape or form. But because this guy's very much in a literal space, all of a sudden she's speaking up. And, I, you know, I wouldn't have expected that. Yeah. I wonder what's behind that. Don't get me wrong, it's perfectly reasonable. I'm just surprised by it. I would have expected her to just sit and suffer, to be honest, but she's challenging it in perfectly legitimate way. Well, when somebody knows they can challenge something without being challenged back, they have more balls to go and address the situation in the first place. So she's clearly made a risk assessment within her own head and she's kind of seen a situation where she can have a little bit of control where she hasn't normally been able to do so. And unfortunately, this poor man is getting the brunt of that. And sometimes it's not just how she feels about that situation. It could be on the bigger spectrum because you can take it out on him. He's getting the full force of everything all the way that she feels. Wow. So he's not just getting her upset about being woken up. He's getting her, my silent resentment grew. I'm getting this image of almost like floodgates opening with that. And I'm wondering about the words that he's actually learning now are sort of standing out to me. Yeah, they're Um, beautiful. They're kind words, aren't they? Please excuse me. Thank you. You too kind. I'm coming back, James, to your hope from our previous conversation and what you just said they're beautiful and it feels like we haven't said that about anything in this story so far and the fact that he's learning those words maybe he's beginning to recognize that he's probably disturbing her oh now you're making me think is he more aware than maybe she lets him so i don't think so i think he's just an old man that's trying to hustle his way through life and he's just genuinely one of those nice people. I think when she comes to the realisation, oh, he's actually just a genuinely nice guy, she's going to feel really, really bad. Well, shall we see? Yeah, please. (laughs) (laughs) That summer was unusually hot. The heat seemed to bake out of the floor and shimmer dustily from the pavements. The flat was stuffy, and I sometimes lay awake for hours, caged by the heat, in terrible anticipation of the morning's vegetable delivery. It became a torment. I flinched at every sound from Mr Tamanoki's flat, every footstep outside my door. His presence, even silent, enraged me. I watched his window at night, trying to catch sight of him behind the bamboo blind. Several times I found myself standing outside his door, my hand raised as if to knock. It would have been better If he had had a riotous family, I told myself in growing bitterness, if he had played some noisy musical instrument, anything would have been better than this secret man and his vegetables. One day, as I returned from a shopping trip, 
I found Mr. Tamanoki waiting for me on the landing. His hampers were nowhere to be seen, and he had left his door ajar. I could not prevent myself from sneaking a glance inside. Through the doorway, I could make out a bright, bare interior glowing with the full light of the afternoon sun. Juzo Tamanoki nodded and, for the first time in our acquaintance, spoke. Cha, he said. I stared at him uncomprehendingly. He nodded again. Please, please. With a gesture, he beckoned me in. The door swung wide, bewildered, reluctant. I followed him inside. The room was almost bare. A red lantern swung from the ceiling. A bamboo calendar on the far wall. A futon in the far corner. The tiny kitchen space was almost filled by an enormous, old-fashioned pink refrigerator. Beside it, a large, heavy chopping board on which were aligned a number of knives. A low table in the centre of the room on which stood a lacquer tea service. A red tatami mat on either side. Mr Tamanoki beckoned me to sit down and, with ease of long practice, poured the tea. It was an unfamiliar brew, greenish and fragrant, with a quick, sharp scent. Mr Tamanoki poured carefully into the small bowls and used a bamboo whisk to froth the liquid. It tasted the way cut grass smells, warm and smoky green. From time to time, Mr Tamanoki nodded to me and smiled. There was no conversation. I supposed his English was not good enough to sustain small talk. Moats filled the bright air between us. For the first time in my life, I felt wholly comfortable with another person in silence. Finally, Mr. Tamanoki stood up, smiling. He made his way into the kitchen and opened the refrigerator door. He beckoned me to look in. I followed. The cabinet was filled with birds. Orange, yellow, green, scarlet. An aviary of birds of every imaginable shape. Some fan-tailed, others sleek, crested, streamlined, long-baked, bright-eyed, resting among flowers and leaves in tropical abundance. All were silent and eerily still. These were the vegetables, which were delivered every morning at 5.30 outside my window, now carved and worked into these intricate designs. Here a radish opened miraculous feathers. A squash became a plump waterfowl. A carrot sprouted a feathery bird of paradise tail.
The eyes were small black pins. The feathers were parred away with a tiny knife. I could see the texture of a bird's back brought to life. The half-open beak just showing a sliver of tongue. The delicate arch of the neck, the wing. There must have been over a hundred vegetable carvings in there. Everyone resting lovingly on the shelf, waiting to be packed into Juzo Tamanoki's hamper and delivered as a garnish for a dish of jasmine rice or ginger prawn, perhaps to be wondered at briefly or more likely ignored altogether. So this was Mr. Tamanoki's secret, this avery of magical birds, company perhaps for one bred in captivity. I looked at them in amazement and delight. Dream birds, flightless, voiceless, but riotous with colour. They're beautiful, I said. You too kind, answered Mr. Tamanoki, his eyes gleaming. And we'll just take a, a quick break there just before we finish the story. Were you surprised that she went in? No. No. <laughs> Curiosity was probably killing her by now. <laughs> and it's, it's, we've already established she doesn't feel threatened by this mm. man in any way, shape or form, does she? No. Yeah. It's interesting, James, what you're saying. Curiosity overcame that bitterness, overcame that resentment and just... Mm. Yeah, step through that auntie that she felt she could almost in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think as well, when she's entered and she said like she just found immediate peace. Like I feel like she's found her place where she's like happy and she's fit in and she's like, it doesn't matter that no one's talking, like he can't speak English and she's a bit reserved, but the silence is peaceful. Yeah, I think it's the start of something really, really beautiful between them. I love that you brought us to that line, T. For the first time in my life, I felt wholly comfortable with another person in silence. And it brought me back to our conversation around that line, an unperson, a vacuum, yeah. a ghost. But I think if you've always been that unseen person, you've always been that person that has no standing in that environment. When someone truly sees you for the first time and actually sees you, it is like you're a ghost that can suddenly be seen by everybody because that one person is finally seeing you at like i don't know how to explain it other than that i think maybe with the language barrier she sat with someone she's comfortably sharing a silence because she doesn't feel any pressure to fill those gaps mm. and fill those descriptions you know like she doesn't need yeah. to explain herself and sometimes the pressure to have a conversation makes it harder to have that conversation. I know when I walk into a social setting, I'm like, I don't know what to say. I don't know. The more I try and think of something to say, I'm like, oh my God, I, can't, I really can't think of anything to say. But when you just meet someone and you're talking and it's sort of, you're comfortable and then that happens naturally, people struggle to get me to shut up. But in the opposite sense of that, I think it is really right what you said, James, because of the language barrier, that pressure of I've got to make conversation and meaningful conversation is sort of taken off her and she can just sort of be and it's okay. Like all of her weird quirks, stuff she'd normally get pulled up on by other people and made to feel adverse or some kind of way about it. 
someone with a language barrier and she's genuinely nice is just accepting her for all parts of her in her silence in her weird quirks and the rest of it and like I said she's being seen isn't she and accepted Mm. yeah and both of you said that word pressure Mm. and it's making me think of our very first conversation and how it felt a very pressured situation because she was always having to put up a front always trying to appear like she's got it together and I get a sense of release almost as you're both speaking and I'm also wondering about Mr. Tamanoki because and we'll finish the story in just a minute but those last two lines they're beautiful I said you too kind answered Mr. Tamanoki his eyes gleaming do you know you're the one with the language barrier and you're new to the area and everyone just sort of I think he's not used to being seen either. I think they're both seeing each other. He's used to just sort of like people muttering some derogatory thing as they walk past, not trying to take the time to make conversation with him. And I think as well, he's being seen. So it works both ways. They're providing that peace and that comfort for each other in that respect. Mm. You know, as you were speaking to you, I was thinking that this word unlikely came to my head. And you know that unexpectedness of this moment that we've sort of stepped into really came out as you were speaking. He left soon after that. I did not see him go. The first I knew of it was when the delivery van failed to arrive. I awoke at 7.40 with yellow sunlight streaming thickly through the slats in the blinds. Later, I noticed the name written above the doorbell was gone. I felt curiously bereft at his absence. Although I was no longer awoken at 5.30 by the vegetable van, I slept badly. I was restless. I found myself missing Mr. Tamanoki's comings and goings, his vegetable hampers, the sound of his small movements in the flat opposite mine. I no longer relished the silence around me as much as I once had. The coldness of Mortimer Street was no longer a comfort. I began to watch my neighbours, the Hadleys with their shy son, Miss Hedges from the antique shop down the street, and the Maguires, with their cheery, messy horde of children, with a more lenient eye. Perhaps they had been right, I told myself. Perhaps I hadn't given them a chance. For some weeks after his departure, Mr Tamanoki's rooms remained empty. There was a talk of a new tenant arriving soon, a woman alone, but no one seemed to know much about her though Miss Hedges had seen her once. A funny kind of woman, she told me, her mouth pursed with disapproval. Never said a word to me, not your friendly type at all. The thought did not attract me as once it might have done. The day before the new tenant arrived, I found the door to Mr Tamanuki's flat open. The room smelt of dust, the table, the lantern, the Tadaami were gone. The kitchen was empty. 
everything had been left neat and bare. The steel surface of the sink carefully wiped of moisture, the cloth left to dry on the tap. There was a small rice paper package next to the sink. My name was written on it in shaky capitals. The thin paper was dried petals between my fingers. As I opened the package, the scent was suddenly, startlingly pungent in my nostrils. A smell like bonfire night, autumn firewood and gunpowder. Something crumbled between my fingers and I recognised the contents of the packet as tea. Japanese green tea. It's shredded leaves packed with scent. That night I prepared it, trying to recall exactly how Juzo had done it, fanning the steam with my hand to release the flavour. It was good, soporific somehow. I felt as if I would sleep well after drinking it, perhaps better than I had ever done before. In the morning... I would invite my new neighbour, the unfriendly woman who never said a word, to share the rest of the packet with me. She might be glad of a friendly face to welcome her to the street. As I finished the cup, I noticed that in the semi-darkness of my room, with a fire casting stilted red shadows on the wall, the rising steam looked like a bird's wings fluttering, ready to fly away. Well, it's quite interesting, it really. It could have gone either way. Mm. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> but it seems her encounter with uh, the Japanese fella sort of opened her eyes a little bit and uh, softened her in her approach or in her judgment of other people. Mm. It turned her into wanting to connect, which was the real twist. <laughs> I think what this man did for her was show her that not everyone is bad not everyone has bad intentions for you and not everyone is trying to get something out of you he just spoke to her but they didn't speak they drank tea together <laughs> so to repeat that ritual even though he's gone was her reclaiming back that peace she found while she was with him in that good company. And I think that's why she's so willing to invite this new neighbour around. I think she's realised that there are bad people in this world and there are people that you don't want around you and you don't want in your circle. But that doesn't mean that you have to shut everyone out and not give anyone a chance to get close to you. Mm, I love that way that you said that, James, that it's a twist. And T, what you're saying, that what she's realising or what she's learning, it's almost like a twist for her too. We're leaving this story and we're leaving this character, but we've been left with that line, ready to fly away. But I'm also really, really glad she's realised that people do come and go. This no. could have been her absolute breakdown, like the man that was her piece had left and that's her shutting straight back into herself. So I'm also really glad she's come to the realisation people too come and go. It was time for his wings to fly. She's going to fly off on her own journey, but she's still progressing. She's not going backwards either, which I think is really beautiful. Like Jim said, it could have gone either way. Yeah, I wish he stayed. <laughs> oh, 
years, staff and volunteers at the Reader have learned there are a few essential values or behaviours that are key to a great shared reading experience, and one of them is be kind, which might sound a bit bland or maybe saccharine, but as Frank spoke about in his eulogy, kindness can be stern and joyful. Or as in that story, the unhistoric act of paying attention to another person is seismic. It widens the view. It is the gift of a sudden shift in perspective. And that is what happens in the very best moments of shared reading. That's it for this episode of The Reader Podcast. If you want to listen to the whole of that discussion about Tea with the Birds, or any of the other shared reading sessions recorded for National Prison Radio, you can find them on the Reader's SoundCloud. There's a link in the description for this episode. Or watch out for news coming soon of when all the programmes will be released as part of a podcast by the Prison Radio Association. Joanne Harris's novel Orphea is published by Galance, and her short story collection Jigs and Reels is published by Penguin Random House. We are grateful to them, and to Joanne, to Frank Cottrell Boyce, to the Prison Radio Association, to T, James and Lizzie for their contributions to this programme. Thanks, as always, to Chris Lynn for excellent sound editing and production support. The reader relies on the kindness of all these people, but most especially on the support of our core funders, Arts Council England, the National Lottery Community Fund, the Players of the People's Postcode Lottery and the Steve Morgan Foundation. By the way, you might have noticed birdsong in the background earlier in this podcast. That was recorded by Chris at the Reader's headquarters in Calderstones Park in Liverpool. Do come and visit us in person when conditions allow. We'll be back soon for more conversation, recommendations and shared reading. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit the Reader's website to find the various ways you can support our work through donation, subscribing to the Reader magazine or becoming a friend of the Reader. Or leave us a review and help to spread the word. Till next time, goodbye.